All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to New Life. Glad you guys made it out today. You didn't get scared by the early predictions, uh, you know, a few days ago about snow. All right, you overcame that. And then uh, you didn't get scared because it was raining. So you obviously, you know, weren't afraid of melting uh, because of the sweetness that you're made up. Right? Exactly. I know some of you, though, you came in with umbrellas just to protect yourself, just in case. It's all right. It's all right. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. It's glad to, glad to have you guys with us. If you are a guest with us today, I want to say thanks for taking the time to come out and worship with us. Please take the advice of my wife. Fill out that response card that should be in front of you. Take it out to our Welcome Center, and those guys will be more than happy to give you an incredible gift uh, that's from us to you. I think you're really going to enjoy it if you like things like ice cream or coffee. If you don't like those kinds of things, though, then forget about filling out the card, all right? Because... I don't know. You may not even fit in here. I don't know. Um, so fill out the card, take it out there, take a risk on ice cream and coffee, and take one of our free gifts and enjoy your time today. Um, if there's anything that we can do for you, we do have hosts that are here. We call them ushers. They're in the back of our auditorium. They're here to serve you, to help you, as well as we have greeters that are out at our information center, and they can answer just about any question that you can throw at them. All right? So please test them today. Throw out all kinds of really hard questions at them and see, see how many that they can really answer. Okay? Hey, this past week, I'm super proud of our church. Um, you may not know much about this event, but it's called District Council. It's when all the pastors of all of our Assembly of God churches, which New Life's a part of, from across the state of Nebraska, all come together uh, for a moment where we, we worship together. We also hold all, all of our business we also do our credentialing service during that time where we give, uh, we give people that have um, done all the hard work and the prayer and they've, they've got God's call on their life. We, or, we uh, give them ordination. We give them a license. We give them a certification to do ministry. It's just a wonderful time where everyone comes together and New Life was the host. Carney, your church right here was the host and wow, you guys did such a great job. Uh, from our greeters that came out to help us, to all of our custodial staff, to all of our volunteers that, that uh, were a part of our women's ministry underneath uh, Julie Hofer. You guys did a fantastic job, and we really blessed all of our pastors that were here. And I want to I thank you. If you've ever given a dollar to our building fund, you need to know that this past week we thoroughly max out the building. Uh, during the day, we, we used all of our lower areas. We used the high school auditorium and we used the, the junior high auditorium. And during the evenings, we used our uh, main auditorium here. And then we went down into our gym venue and we used that as well. It was fantastic. Uh, we had all of that going on and many people asked me, don't you have a daycare here? I went, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of kids running around, you know, 130 plus students that are running around. They went, I hardly even knew that they were here. And so you guys did such a great job. Thank you for being a wonderful church that allowed our pastors to come and be relaxed. All right. So good job. You did wonderful. Well, today we're in our current teaching series. We've entitled Relics. If you've been here for any of the past weeks, then you'll know, uh, you know, pretty quick that this is a spiritual archaeological dig to discover the truth behind some ancient relics um, that if we really could find them, uh, what is the historical or the legend of their power? That's one side of it. But the other side of it that we're highly interested in is what is the what's the truth of the power that they represent? And how do we find that power through God's word, through his teaching today, and through experiencing God? That's kind of where we're at. Last week, if you were here, we talked about uh, the, the power or the we talked about the whip 
that was used in the flogging of Jesus, and we talked about it as it was the power for healing, that by his stripes, the Bible says, by the stripes or the wounds that were inflicted by, by the whip, by his stripes, we can be healed. If you were here last week, which by the way, you need to know something about this whole year of 2014, we've been having extreme record attendance here at our church. Last week was another one of those weeks where we've been averaging well over uh, 800 people on a regular basis. That just blows things out of the water for our church. In, in the past, as an example, like last year, we may have had one or two Sundays, like an Easter that was over 800. Now, this entire year of 2014, there's only been a few Sundays where we've been lower than 800, and most of them have been above that. And I'm just telling you these things because numbers matter to God. Numbers represent souls. And God's Word, you know, tells me very plainly and clearly that God desires that everyone, 7 billion plus people on the planet, that's the way God's math would work, He desires that everyone who's ever lived, who lives right now, and who will live in the future until Jesus comes back, He wants everyone to spend eternity with Him in heaven. I think God cares about numbers. So I'm letting you know where we're at. But I also want to let you know that down in our gym venue that happens during our second service, we had a record attendance down there last week. We had 160 people attending, even in our gym venue, plus what was here. It's awesome. It's awesome, yeah. And of those people, people are getting saved on a weekly basis. They're giving their lives to Christ. They're finding freedom in Christ. It is a wonderful time to be here. God really is doing something special. And so as we continue our teaching series today, we're going to be looking at the cross. We're going to talk about the power of salvation. So let me just preface it with this. The cross, obviously, as soon as I say that, many of you go, oh, I know exactly what the cross did. I know exactly what happened with the cross. I I even own a cross. So I must, I know what the cross is about. And I just want you to somehow fight that urge off to say, oh, the cross. He's talking about the cross. This will be familiar. I've got this one covered. I want you to fight that urge off and I want you to dial those emotions down. And I want you to listen with your spirit today. Because I believe that God's got something he really wants to deposit into your spirit. All right? So the cross, the power of salvation. How many of you would say that you are a person that uh, has thought at one point of your life, or you think right now, that you are at some some level invincible? I'm putting my hand up. (laughs) I still think this today. There's still pieces in me that denies the fact I'm getting older, right? Denies those things, and I still feel somewhat invincible. I still feel at times that I've got the world by the tail, all right? Anybody else with me? I mean, come on. It's not, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong, um, with admitting the fact that you're wrong. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong when you're unable to admit that you're wrong. All right. So, uh, we got the world by the tail or that, um, you know, because we can go long periods of time without harm or without failure, then we run our lives many times at a hundred miles per hour. Anybody like me like that? All right. There we go. I got a couple people. All right. I'm trying to see who I identify with, and so far right now, it's not looking good. All right. Um, we, we, we think, though, we think only about today and little about the future. It's true. It's true. And let me just prove it very quickly. For many of you, like me, at the age 44, look at your retirement account. It will tell you how much you think about the future and how much you think about today. 
This all, this all seems to go well until tragedy strikes us, though. Until we end up in a situation where the weight of the world is too big for us to handle. So let me walk through a couple of those moments just to make sure we're on the same page. Like when you have this beautiful house filled with all your family heirlooms, they go back for generation and generation, and all of a sudden your house is struck with fire, and it burns to the ground, and you lose everything. And you realize at that moment, the world really is bigger than me. I'm not invincible. Or when your business that's been successful is screaming along and things are going well, and all of a sudden something that's outside of your control, like a recession or a depression hits, and everything falls apart, and you realize that the world is really bigger than you. Or you're driving down the interstate for a regular uh, regular journey on a vacation, and a tire blows, and your car rolls, and it ends up in a ditch, and you're upside down hanging by your seatbelt, you realize all of a sudden the world really is bigger than you. Or you're living along, you're going well, and you think that your life is healthy, and you've been taking care of your body all of a sudden to find out one day as you sit in a doctor's office that cancer has really taken over. And unfortunately, it's not until moments like that that we really humble ourselves and admit the fact that we need a Savior, that we need some someone to really come and rescue us, or we need something to come and rescue us. And it's not until then that we ever thought that we needed one. We always thought up until that moment that we were tough enough. And today, today on this journey that we're going on, I want to help you in some capacity today to help you realize you are in need of a Savior. You're not invincible, especially when it comes to your spiritual life. That Jesus is our Savior. He's the Savior He is bigger than your sin. He's he's bigger than anything that you faced. He he can conquer he can conquer death, hell, and the grave. He can conquer your sin. That your sin all by itself with you, you're going down like as if you're in the ocean with a big millstone tied around your neck and it's sucking you to the bottom of the ocean. You're in need of a savior, and his name is Jesus. But without the cross, without the cross, he is no savior. So if Jesus comes as God's only son and he lives on the earth and in the garden of Gethsemane, he decides, no, I'm abandoning the mission. Then you need to know something. You don't end up with a savior. The fact is that Jesus took his mission and his mission to the cross and he did it with great joy in his heart. He did it with a fervor inside of his heart. He did it with an obedience inside of his heart. He did it with joy. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 has to say to us. It says, let us fix our eyes on who? On Jesus, because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Someone else was told to fix his eyes on Jesus when he stepped out of a boat one day. And he's And he started to sink as he got his eyes off of Jesus. And he realized very quickly, I'm in need of a Savior. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the author of your faith. And he's the perfecter of your faith. You didn't write your own faith. There's nothing that you can write up. There's no creative ideas that you can come up with that can create a God in such a way that can deliver you from the punishment of your sin. Jesus is the one who wrote it. Jesus is the one who can perfect it. You and me are in need of a Savior. And he followed through with joy in his heart, knowing the reward that was ahead of him. He followed through, and he became our Savior. You need to know something today, that the cross, 
The cross was no joy ride. There was nothing fun about the cross. It wasn't that Jesus went to the cross with laughter on him and just went, <laughs> all right, let's bring this on. you got to realize today, if you were here last week, Jesus limped to the cross. Jesus physically barely made it to the cross. That if there wasn't someone who came along and they didn't take the cross off of his shoulders, he may very well have collapsed right there and not even, he would have had to crawl his way. Crawl his way to the hill to get up on the cross. He was beaten and bruised. He was a bloody pulp of a man. There was no joy ride to it. And the cross was the, the finale of that day of torture. And the, and the cross is an instrument. It, it was an instrument of uh, uh, of horror. It wasn't an instrument of honor. It was something that no Jew wanted to get close to. They saw its horrific uh, behavior and what it what it did to the human body. It was the most gruesome act of torture, the most gruesome act of execution of its day. It was no throne for a king, that's for sure. But Jesus, he knew the power of its mission. And he surrendered to it with great joy. How was the cross really used? Well, we know it as a as an instrument of execution. The cross there was recent well, recently within the last hundred years, in nineteen sixty eight, some archaeologists were digging and they found the remains of a man who had been crucified. Up until that point we we really only could guess on how the cross was really used. We had brief statements here and there that were written about. And, you know, we always pictured Jesus as he's hanging on the cross with his, with his two feet crossed over and his and nails right through the palms of his hand. And, you know, as his two feet were crossed over, one, one nail that just kind of penetrated through both of them, right through the top of the foot. But in these, in these bone fragment remains, they found the, the heel. They found the really the right heel of this man who had been crucified, and come to find out, this is, this is the way it was, as if the vertical beam of the cross was behind me, his feet were not crossed over at all. His feet were actually put back. His heels were lined up against the beam, and then a, and then a, 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 large, a large iron nail was nailed through the side of the heel, straight into the board. Just straight through the sides. Feet on both sides, nailed straight through. All of your weight is pushing down on a, on a nail now that has gone through your bone into the cross. And then some believe that the arms were actually wrapped over the top and strapped to it. And others, others say that if your weight was going to be held scientifically, if your weight was going to be held by nails going through your arms, they would never hold by going through your hand. Eventually, it would just rip out through the fingers. So they would go through the two bones in your wrists. And they would tie him, pin him to the tree by the two nails through his wrists and the individual nails through the heel straight into the board. Now, how does a man die on a cross? A man dies on a cross... Many times, as he lingered there long enough, they would literally come and break his leg. For Jesus, they broke no bones. But he died of suffocation on the cross. If you can picture yourself hanging there, and with my jacket, I I can't really do that well, but the arms would go up as you sank down. As you sank down, you know, 
the muscles and the and the bones would creep in on the neck and you would you would literally have to push up off the two nails through your heels and pull up through the nails that were through your wrists to get a breath only to sink back down and as you hung there you couldn't breathe and you would literally get to a point where you had no more strength in your body to pull yourself up and you would eventually just black out because you could get no air that's the kind of cross that Jesus died on and on that cross blood flowed and his side was pierced and blood and water flowed as a, as a lung was punctured and it's filling with liquid and it's even harder and harder for him to breathe. That's the kind of death that our Savior faced. That's what makes him the Savior. Is that he endured that scorn. He endured that pain so that you and me might have a relationship with God. You go, I don't understand that right now, Jeff. I got it. By the end of today, you'll understand it. So where is a cross like that? Well, imagine with me. Imagine with me that your leader, your leader was just brutally beaten with a whip and he's just put up on a cross to die a shameful death. What would you want to do with the cross? Hey, let's get our hands on that thing, man. You know, people in the future are really going to want to be able to see this. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, you just, you'd probably want to get away from it. You'd probably want to have nothing to do with it. So the cross of Jesus goes dormant and silent for about 300 years until Constantine, he, he empowers his, his mother, Helena, to go find the relics of Christianity. So in about 326 AD, she searches, she goes out and she goes to Jerusalem to try to find the relics of Christ. Very much like the journey we're on. But this is only 300 years later. And in the legend of, of the cross, she says that she got to Jerusalem and while she's looking for these relics, this one, the crown of thorns, the, the holy grail, she's looking for the cross as well, that she comes across this man by the name of Judas, who's a Jew. He says that he knows where the cross is at, but he won't tell anyone. He's trying to preserve it. So she puts him in a cell and starves him until he finally gives up the secrets of where the cross is at. Now this is all legend. He tells her, it is, it's underneath the temple that's dedicated to Venus. So Helena, with all of her resources given to her by Constantine, goes and has the temple destroyed, knocked down to the ground. Then she begins to dig beneath the temple. And she digs and she digs and she digs until all of a sudden she comes across three crosses. When she finds these three crosses, now she has to wonder to herself, which one is the cross of Christ? As the legend goes, she says, well, let's go get a very sick a sick person. So they find a woman who is paralyzed, who can't walk, who is deathly ill, on the edge of death, and they bring her to the three crosses, and they have her touch the three crosses. And the cross that heals her becomes the cross of Christ. That's how the legend goes. So then she cuts that cross into three pieces. In three pieces. One piece she sends to Rome, another piece she sends to Constantine, and another piece she establishes. She is the builder of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, of which is built for the purpose of housing one of the three pieces of the cross. This is the legend. Now, 
as that, as that journey goes, the cross, as you know, Jerusalem, if you don't know anything about history, Jerusalem is destroyed, it's burnt to the ground, it's built back up, it's destroyed again, it's built back up, it's destroyed again, and the cross passes through multiple different hands. The cross was often found in the front, this piece of this cross, often found marching the troops in the battle. But the cross ends up legend, in a legendary type of sense, changing hands from Persians to Muslims to the Crusaders. Churches are destroyed. People die. All for the sake of a piece of wood. Now, many of the things that I told you are historical facts. Other things are just legend. One thing that we are fairly certain of with the cross is that the cross that Jesus died on would have been a cross that was used over and over again. It would have been a cross that maybe a couple days later a, a murderer would have died on. It would have been a cross a few days later that maybe a thief died on. Or a rapist died on. It would have been a cross that others that were deserving execution, they would have died on. And almost immediately, that cross would have dissolved into the background and no one really would have known Which cross was the cross of Christ? Much less, why would Christians want to get their hands on it to preserve it when it was such an instrument of torture? Well, today, many churches claim to still have a piece of the cross. But Martin Luther said that if all of the pieces of the cross that people claim to have were all brought together and put into one pile in one place, there would be enough wood, not just to build another cross, but to build an entire house. There's a lot of people that say they've got a piece of the cross. A lot of them say they have a sliver that's stuck away in some nice golden cross now, just buried in the center of it. Where is the cross of Jesus? No man knows. Do you have a splinter of it? No man really knows. Has it been dissolved? Has it been eaten by termites? Most likely. You're most likely never going to find the cross. But what is the power of the cross? The power of the cross... It's spoken about many different times in a number of different scriptures, but for today's sake, I want to draw your attention to one scripture that points to the power of the cross. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2. It says that he, meaning Jesus, he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the what? To the cross. In this way, he, Jesus, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities... And he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now leave that verse up there. There's a lot of things in that verse that speak to the power of the cross. First off, Jesus stopped the punishment of our sins. He brought a halt to it. Jesus, with his death and his resurrection, his death on the cross, he put a stop to the punishment of our sins. No longer can your sins act like a millstone around your neck and take you to the bottom of the ocean to be totally separated from God. If you allow Jesus to be your Savior and you don't live your life thinking that you're invincible, Jesus also took our sins away, never to be remembered again. He took the sins away. That's what it means to be forgiven is that God literally forgives and he forgets. Your sins are taken away, never to be held against you again. But that's not where it ended. Jesus also disarmed Satan and his demons. He took all authority and power over them when it says that he took the keys of Hades, when he took the keys of hell itself, when he trampled upon death, 
When he overcame those things, he disarmed Satan. He became the victorious son of God who is powerful that in his name, demons have to flee. That in the name of Jesus, sickness has to flee. That in the name of Jesus, those who were dead will rise again. That in the name of Jesus, he triumphed over them and he, and he disarmed them. But he didn't stop there. He also shamed Satan and his demons publicly when the cross couldn't keep him down. He shamed them. They thought they had won a great victory. Satan was thinking to himself, I've got this. This is awesome. And then the ground begins to shake. And the stone rolls away. And Jesus comes victorious again, alive, in all power, in all authority, in full godhood. Jesus rises again. And he shames Satan and his demons as he rises again. Now next week, we're talking about the shroud. We're talking about the power of the resurrection. You're going to want to come back. And I'm going to build on that point even more. But listen. To sum up what Jesus did in the power of the cross is that Jesus made a way for us to have relationship with God again. He became the Savior, the mediator. He became the bridge between man and God. We have a way to spend eternity with God in heaven, a perfect, holy God, because Jesus gave his life on the cross. Jesus restored what Satan tried to destroy back in the garden with Adam and Eve. Satan weasels his way in, Adam and Eve, who are walking in relationship with God. Who it says that in the cool of the evening, that God himself came and he walked in the garden and he had fellowship with them. And that Adam and Eve, they knew God. They had an intimate relationship with God. But then when Satan comes in and he weasels his way in and he tempts them and they stumble and they fall, that part is broken until later when a passage in Genesis And God says to Satan, I'm going to raise one up who's going to trample upon your head. Who's going to put you down. Who's going to put his foot on your neck and hold you to the ground. He was talking about his own son, Jesus, who came to restore what Satan tried to destroy. That's the power of the cross. The power of the cross liberates you so that you might have a relationship with God in heaven. So how do you find the power of the cross today? Well, to do that, let's look really quickly in Mark chapter chapter 8. And let's go to verse 34. It says, this is a familiar passage, okay? But it says, then he, he called the crowd to him. That's Jesus. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a familiar passage. But if you want to discover the power of the cross... This passage has to become something that isn't just a good passage that you read. It has to become a passage that you apply to your life. And there's three critical things that we see in this passage. First off, it says this, you have to deny yourself. You know, I have yet to meet someone who didn't want to preserve themselves. I've yet to meet someone who didn't want to, you know, make themselves look better, make themselves sound better, or make themselves feel better in some capacity or in some way. self Preservation is something that we are driven by in our humanity. And in our self-preservation, it causes us to have humanistic dreams. Dreams of wealth. Dreams of owning, owning properties. Dreams of retirement. Dreams of comfort. Dreams that involve family. Dreams that, like mine many times, involve some sort of an adrenaline rush. Right? That you can just get out there and, man, you can make it happen. And not all these dreams are bad. 
But then there's also this self-preservation that says, I deserve, I work hard, I deserve to live my life the way I want to, which many times involves sin, the sin of greed, or the sin of envy, or the sin of sexual immorality, or the sin of some kind of substance abuse like alcoholism, or the list goes on and on and on. But Jesus says, if you want to understand the power of the cross, then you have to learn to deny yourself. What's he really saying when he says deny yourself? He's saying you've got to figure out how to... Implement some self-discipline. Deny himself. Some self-discipline is required if you want to discover the power of the cross. Some self-discipline in going, whose dream am I going to live for? Self-discipline. Am I going to keep on sinning? Or am I going to start implementing some self-discipline that I join with the power of the Holy Spirit to bring a stop to it? Now, I, I understand these needs and these dreams. I understand this, this constant barrage on you, you know, to not deny yourself or to struggle with self-discipline. I struggle with something in this town. It's found on 2nd Avenue that helps you out a little bit. I struggle with mint ice cream malts with chocolate flakes made at Culver's. It's my confession to you today. Some of you know this about me, and so you, you tempt me. And I get, I get text messages from a couple of you that say, Hey, Jeff, well, as you know, I just drove by Culver's today, and guess what the flavor of the day is? Andy's Mint Chocolate Ice Cream. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad, glad that you care about me that way. I have shown some discipline in this area. Not enough, but I have shown some. I've reduced my intake from larges to smalls. I've also reduced my intake by purposefully, at times, no joke, driving a different route so I don't drive by Culver's. So I've shown some amount of discipline. But there are those moments when I just break down and I go, by golly, I've worked hard this week. And you know what I deserve? I deserve a mint ice cream malt with chocolate flakes from Culver's. And then I pile in the car and I drive over and I get one. Now this is fine, right, when it concerns those types of things. But for many of us, we live a nightmare of a life. A nightmare of a life as our sin keeps creeping back. As our selfish desires keep creeping back. And it's as if we have zero self-discipline to overcome them. But Jesus is saying, if you want to take up and you want to understand the power of the cross in your life, then you've you've got to learn how to have some self-discipline. But listen to me. Self-discipline isn't just saying no. That's the life I grew up in. I grew up in, it said, you know, if you're going to live a life for Christ, you've got to learn how to say no. No to things of this world. Let me say say it to you differently today. That if you want to learn what it means to deny himself, you have to learn how to say yes to the cross. It's more about saying yes to Christ than it is saying no all the time to sin. You have to be more aggressive at saying yes than no. If you say yes to the cross and you drive with your purpose towards the cross, guess what happens to the desire of the sin? It decreases. It requires less no's. So which one would you rather focus on? Saying no to the sin all the time or saying yes to Christ? It's a no-brainer saying yes to Christ. Because in saying that, it's as if you're saying no to sin. 
But saying yes to Christ, we feel invincible. We feel like we got the world by the tail. We only typically say yes to Christ when the heat gets turned up. It's better to say yes to Christ consistently. And in doing so, saying no to sin happens naturally. Galatians 5.24 says it this way. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and they crucified them there. Say yes to Christ by nailing your sinful passions and your desires to the cross. When they start to grow strong, bring them to the foot of the cross and say yes to God. God, I want to honor you today. God, I want to live my life holy today. I want you to be the Lord. I want you to be the leader of my life. God, I want you to take that thought Take that thought captive. I want, I want you to control my thoughts today. I want you to control my eyes today. I want you to control, you know, my lack of ability to forgive. I want you to control those areas of my life. Come to him with that kind of an attitude. Say yes to him. One of the things that's helpful for me in saying yes to Jesus is that I realize that every time I sin, it's as if I'm taking, for me in my mind, I'm taking another nail, I'm taking the hammer, and I'm nailing Jesus to the cross. And I don't want to be that man. I put enough nails in Jesus already. I don't want to keep nailing him to the cross. But when I see myself doing that, it causes me to want to say yes to him. It causes me to want to worship him. It causes me to want to say, thank you for bearing the scorn of the shame of this cross for my sin. And the other thing is, the more you say yes to Jesus, the more of you is being crucified on the cross. The less of you is able to roam around in sin. When you say yes to Jesus, it's like taking another chunk of your heart, hanging it on the cross. And the more of you that hangs on the cross and is crucified with Christ, the less of you is out there roaming around in a sinful nature. If you want to experience the power of the cross, the second thing in that passage said to take up your cross. Now the cross, we've already, we've already talked about it. The cross was an instrument of torture. And when Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross, all they could see in their mind was, you, you want me to go hang on a cross? This is before Jesus ever did. They knew exactly what that meant. They knew it would meant the flogging first, and then it would mean the cross. And they're like, you want me? What do you want? You want me to torture myself on the cross? You want us to go and torture each other and hang each other on crosses for a period of time? Is that what you're looking for, Jesus? What are you talking about? Because the cross is an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of execution. It's like today's gas chamber or today's electric chair. It's one of those. It's like a guillotine. It's a point of death. You go on the cross, you don't come back off the cross. You die on the cross. So was Jesus saying to us, was he suggesting that we submit ourselves to torture if we want to experience the power of the cross? Before you answer that, I want you to think deeply with me. Every athlete that prepares him or herself for a battle, every athlete that prepares themselves for a sporting event, tortures their body to prepare for it. They push their bodies to the limits. They run harder and faster than they ever ran. They pump more weight than they've ever done before. They torture their body. They break it down so it can be built back up. Every great scholar of our past tortured their mind as they read book after book and they thought about philosophy after philosophy. Every great spiritual journey is going to require the same level of torture, but it's the torture of the heart. 
It's the torture of the gospel that goes in and it dredges out the wickedness of man's heart. It's the torture of the gospel, the power of the cross that goes into the mind of the believer and it dredges out the wicked, evil thoughts of this world. It's that type of torture. It's not the physical torture of the cross, but it is the spiritual torture of the cross. Let's continue on in our passage in Mark chapter 8. We've been reading in verse 34. Look with me at what Jesus went on to say in verse 35. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, he will what? He'll save it. But you have to be willing to lose it all. Willing to let all of your humanity be tortured. Let all of your dreams and desires tortured out of you. That your life would be focused on Christ. I know this is not easy. It's not palatable to receive it. But if you want to experience the power of the cross, then you've got to take up the cross. Picture it with me this way. If you were out in the desert, you got stuck in the middle of the desert, and the only clean water source you had was a bowl full of water. No top on it, no cap, just a bowl with water on it. And you're stuck in the middle of the desert. You don't know how long you're going to be out there. You don't know where your next good water source is going to come from. You could easily think to yourself, deceive yourself. You could think to yourself, if I preserve this water, if I hold on to this water, then maybe when I get to my final last legs, I could drink it and maybe then it will help me. But if you hang on to that bowl of water with no lid on the top of it in 120, 130 degree heat, guess what happens to the water? It evaporates. And therefore you what? You lose it. If you lose the water in the middle of the desert, you're most likely going to what? Die. But if you lose the water by drinking it, it may be the very essence that causes you to sustain life, to find your way out of the desert. If you want to save your life, you lose it. doesn't make a lot of sense. Take up your cross. doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems more like, preserve me. Take care of me. But Jesus is saying, you give all of me. You give all of yourself to me. You lose your life completely. Let me torture. Let me torture the worldliness out of your heart. Let me torture the worldliness out of your mind. Then you can experience the power of the cross that brings true life. It really is true that no pain no gain. This isn't an easy thing to do. I'm not throwing something out there for the easy. I'm not throwing something out there for the weak. I'm throwing something out there for those that are hungry. I'm throwing something out there for those that are thirsty. I'm throwing something out there for those of you that are going, you know what? This life is mundane. This life has been protected. This life has been safe. I don't want to keep living a safe, mundane life. I want to live a life that's got a story to it. I want to live a life that's worth living. I want to live a life that makes a difference. Well, if that's the case for you, then take up your cross. But it's not for a season. It's for a lifetime. And it never ends. It never ends as long as you're on this earth. But it ends with the greatest reward. And that's eternity with Him in heaven. Take up your cross. Submit yourself to Jesus. And let Him come into your heart and your mind and have His way with you. But lastly, it means to follow Jesus, which literally means to give it all. Following Jesus, just walking in his footsteps. Following Jesus means spending yourself for him, means all of yourself given to him, means that there's no plan to turn back, no plan to turn back. And that's where 
an old pastor back in the early 1900s who still influences many Christian journeys today, A.W. Tozer, he wrote this statement. He said, The man who is crucified is facing only one direction. He cannot look back. Picture it. He's on the cross. He can only look one direction. The crucified man on the cross is looking only one direction, and that is the direction of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. The man on the cross, he has no further plans of his own. Somebody else made his plans for him. And when they nailed him up there, all his plans disappeared. When you go out to die on the cross, you bid goodbye. You are not going back. You want to look the same direction that God's looking for your life today? Let him nail you to the cross. You'll look the same direction that Jesus looked. Or roam around. But if you roam around, I'm telling you, all you end up doing is going after your own human heart desires. And that's mundane, boring, and it ends up in a lot of destruction. But if you lose your life and you get nailed to the cross, it might be the only way that you're ever going to see in the same direction that God sees. So my question to you today is this. What are you nailed to? And where are you looking? What are you nailed to today? And where are you looking? Galatians 6.14 tells us these, these words. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. Still feel invincible? Do you want to keep, want to keep viewing only what the world sees? Or do you want to start seeing what God sees? Do you want the world and its authority and power to still have dominion over you? Or do you want to take dominion over it? Well, today the power of the cross is here for salvation. And the Savior, the one who gave his life for you, is here to help you walk out that relationship but it's going to require you to lay down your titles, to lay down your success, to lay down your journeys, to lay down your dreams. It's going to require you to lay down your sin. It's going to require you to humble yourself and come to Christ and go, I want to be crucified with Christ and I want to know Him and Him only. I want to be crucified with Christ that the sin of this world would it would come off of me and that the world's interest in me, it would dwindle away. See, from From a tree, Adam and Eve sinned, and they broke the relationship with God. But from a tree, Jesus hung, and he restored our relationship with God. Today, the question for you is, are you going to hang on the tree? Are you going to let yourself be crucified, that you might experience the power of the cross in your life? Are you going to run to the one who gave his life and say, God, I want to identify my life with you. I want to deny myself. Teach me how to have how to have discipline that honors you. I want to take up my cross. I want to let you torture out of me the worldly thoughts and torture out of me the worldliness of my heart. And I want to truly know what it means to follow you, to truly give it all. That I might be nailed, crucified to the cross that I might look in the same direction as you and see the world the way you see it, see my life the way you see it, have compassion like you do, love people like you do, 
you know, reach after, after the lost like you do. Hunger after, after God like you did. Honor God with my life like you did. I wanna, I wanna think like you, act like you, love like you. Well, to do that, you have to give it all. It's the only way you're ever gonna stare in the same direction that Jesus stared. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father, today, the cross is, is no easy, palatable message. It hangs around our neck. It hangs in our, it hangs in our office. It hangs in our homes. It stands in our church. It's become the iconic symbol of Christianity. People wear the cross as it's just a, an ornament of modern culture. Of fashion. And they don't even know what it means. You know what the cross meant. The cross wasn't something that just any man could palate. Salvation. Salvation isn't something that's just easily lived out. Thankfully that your death on the cross made it easy to obtain, but it takes a lifetime to live it out. So many of us, we came to the cross and we stood at the foot of the cross and we said, Jesus, thank you for doing this for me. I want that. We walked away years ago and we've wondered why our Christianity has just stumbled along. It's because we never climbed up onto the cross and nailed ourselves there. We were always staring in the opposite direction. The entire time you've been trying to turn our heads, turn our direction. Turn what we stare at, turn what we desire, turn what we hunger after. You've been trying to turn those things and our entire life on this earth is a journey of you trying to turn our heads to look in the same direction as you. It requires humbleness. Lord, at this church today, may you find a sanctuary of people that are humbling themselves before you. And some of us, even after decades of being Christ followers, that we'd be hungry enough that we would come to an altar like this and kneel down and say, the fight is over. I finally be crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ would live in me. May that be the hope. May that be the hope that we share. May that be what we model to our community. Until we're crucified with Christ, we'll never love this community the way you want us to. We'll never live the righteous life that you want us to. We'll never be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel the way you want us to that we're crucified with Christ and we give it all, we lay ourselves down, we deny ourselves and what we choose to truly follow you will never really experience what it means to be a Christ follower. Lord, today, may the power of the cross resonate in our hearts. May we hunger after all that it has for us.